0: With that, we're going to turn our attention to God's Word this morning. We're jumping back into the book of 1 Corinthians. Like I said, we're in 1 Corinthians, so I would encourage you, if you have Bibles, to please open them there to the book of 1 Corinthians. Now, since it's been a little while since we've been in 1 Corinthians, I thought it would be helpful just to um, remind us of some things regarding the context of the book, um, just where we are since we're picking up right kind of in the middle again in chapter 9. So I wanted to just briefly um, mention some of the, the context. Uh, Corinthian or Corinth rather, was an important city on a trade route in the ancient world. The city had a reputation for sexual immorality, religious diversity, and corruption. All these influences caused the church that Paul planted there to struggle mightily, and the church began to divide over various issues. Paul wrote this letter to confront these different issues— and in each instance, the hope for flourishing and for unity in the church is the message of the gospel. The gospel believed and the gospel applied and lived out. So through writing, Paul wanted to help them see that the church, God's people, will inevitably have to be countercultural if we are to be all that God desires us to be. So in our specific passage today, Paul is continuing to address the issue of whether Corinthian believers have the freedom to eat meat that has been sacrificed to idols. So that's, that's a bit of the context of the letter and then where we are in chapter 9. Like I said, we're in chapter 9, um, so you can follow along on the screen or if you have your Bibles open to chapter 9, you can follow along with me as I read the, the whole chapter. Uh, a little bit longer, but uh, let's, let's see what God has for us in his word. It says this, "'Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you, are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord.'" "'This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife?' as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain." Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ." Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting." For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this in my own will, I have a reward. But if not in my own will, I am still entrusted with the stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all... To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. i become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath but we are imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest, after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for how you reveal yourself to us through your word, and you reveal how you sent Christ to redeem us from sin, and you reveal to us how we are to live, how we are to strive after Christ and imitate him. Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes and our ears and our minds and our hearts to your word this morning, that you would change us by it for your glory, that if any, any who are here that have not place initial faith in Christ, Lord, that they would through the reading and the preaching of your word. For those of us who have trusted Christ, Lord, that you would accomplish in us, that you would mold us and shape us through your word. Lord, we are not what we once were, but we're not who we want to be, Lord. Help us to be changed and transformed by your word. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Selfishness. It's not something that we immediately lose, unfortunately, when we become Christians. It's not something that we easily grow out of when we become Christians. It is something that the Lord slowly whittles away as He makes us more like Christ. And I can think of my own examples, even the past couple days, where I've struggled with selfishness in my own heart, in my own life, and how that's affected my relationships in the family and my kids being human like myself they struggle with it too it's something that we all continue to struggle with and like the corinthians we are people that in our sinful nature we want to live for me and we want to live for now we can often care much about what we want and when we want it our rights so to speak and little about how our choices affect others like the corinthians we are people prone to insist on our own rights as we live for me now. That's not what God has for us as his people. As we will see in our passage today, a life in the gospel is called to be much different. We are called to live for God and for others, which is why today's message is entitled Gospel, Big, Greater Sign Towards the Gospel, and Little Me over here. The gospel is greater than us. And it calls us to live every ounce of our lives for its sake. What God has done in the gospel is that great. Every ounce of our lives are to be lived for the sake of Christ and the gospel. So in our passage today, we'll see that because of the penetrating, all-encompassing claim of the gospel upon the believer, we are to live for the sake of the gospel in three ways. By removing obstacles... By living as a servant, and third, exercising self-control and discipline. So three things, three ways that we're to live for the sake of the gospel. Removing obstacles, living as a servant, and then exercising self-control and discipline. At the end of chapter 6, Paul told the Corinthians regarding sexual immorality. He told them, You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. He's basically saying the same thing now in this chapter, because the message of the gospel is the same, but now he's applying it to the issue of rites and eating and drinking. We are not our own, but we are his. Therefore, we must live for the sake of the gospel through those three ways that I mentioned. First, we are to live for the sake of the gospel by removing obstacles for others, As I mentioned, Paul's argument from chapter 8 continues into chapter 9. In chapter 8, Paul concluded that there is nothing inherently wrong in eating meat that has been sacrificed to idols since they have no real existence. But if you do that in such a way as to wound the conscience of your brother or sister who perhaps struggled with worshiping those idols in the past, then you have sinned against Christ. Now in chapter 9, Paul is practically telling and showing them that he does practice what he preaches. What lies behind whether or not to eat food, sacrificed to idols, applies to Paul himself. He's not asking them to be something that he is not or do something that he is not willing to do. Rather, as a leader in the church, he's seeking to model a gospel-centered life and challenging them to imitate him As he imitates Christ. To do this, he says much about his own rights. He's asking the Corinthians to sacrifice their rights out of love for their brother. Now he is telling them that he also sacrifices his rights for the gospel. At the center of this first part of chapter 9 is the ability that Paul has to receive wages from the Corinthians from his gospel work. But he laid down this right for the sake of the gospel. In verse 7, he says, Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? He then shows that he is not saying this from a human authority, right? It would be convenient for him to do so since he would be the one to benefit. But rather, he appeals to God's own authority from the Old Testament. In verses 9 and 10, he quotes from Deuteronomy 25.4 where it says, For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. And then he says, Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? So in Old Testament times, an ox would walk over the grain, and as he did so, the husk of the grain would be loosened from the kernel of the grain. So the chaff or the husk would be then thrown aside or blown away, leaving the edible part of the grain. And when an ox would do this, he was not to be muzzled so that he could also, he could eat some of the grain himself while he is working. Through this verse, Paul ultimately displays that the concern here goes beyond animals to apply to people, specifically ministers of the gospel. He concludes this argument by saying in verse 14, In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So it's Paul's right to be provided for financially by the Corinthian church. And this right even extends to include a minister's family, if he has one. This is why earlier in verse 5, he said, Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles? Though Paul was unmarried, he was saying that he and the other apostles have a right to be married and for their wives and families to be supported under their headship by their ministry of the gospel. But he says in verse 12, nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. So Paul has sacrificed this right To receive compensation from the Corinthians in order that an obstacle would not be placed in the way of the gospel of Christ. We're not given a lot of detail about how or why this would have been an obstacle for the Corinthians. Perhaps they would have thought that Paul was primarily concerned about money rather than the gospel itself. Additionally, it's likely that since they were a very young church, immature in the faith, that they would not have responded very well to Paul exercising this right. The way we steward money and possessions is very much a heart issue. And Paul seemed to discern that their hearts were maybe not quite there yet. It's not just that Paul gave up this right, but that he did it willingly and joyfully. He did not do it begrudgingly. In verses 15 through 18, Paul speaks of boasting, as it says in in our translation. And that's a very good translation. He says he would rather die than have someone deprive him of his ground for boasting. While virtually all the translations use boasting here, for us, boasting has a negative connotation. But there is nothing actually negative in view here. Our boasting usually comes from pride and steals glory from God. But Paul is seeking to express a deep joy and satisfaction in what God has done through him. One commentator felt this was better translated as glory or glorying. Paul gloried in the fact that he did not receive compensation because it gave glory to God. And he would rather die than for that to come to an end. But at the same time, he recognized that simply preaching that gospel is something that he cannot boast or glory in because as a steward to the master, he's simply doing what the master requires of him. So Paul glories not in the fact that he merely does his duty of preaching the gospel, but he does glory in the fact that he isn't receiving compensation for it. Um, my wife recently saw a powerful example of an unwillingness to, to impose a right or to put an obstacle in the way of the gospel, and she re- relayed this to me. Um, you saw some of the pictures in the, the video of the group that went to Russia back in the summer to minister to orphans there, uh, my wife and seven others, um, while they were there, um, she encountered this situation. Um, of the, group was, or the women in the group were painting fingernails with some of the orphan girls. And one of the girls um, spilled an entire bottle of nail polish on one of the shoes of the translators, whose name was Sveta. And uh, of course, these shoes were immediately ruined right away. And to put it in context in terms of the shoes, um, although Sveta, this translator, is very well educated and has a good job, she likely makes relatively little money. So these new shoes proportionally probably cost her much more than they would cost many of us. But she responded in a very gracious way. She didn't get upset. She wasn't angry with this girl, but extended grace to her. She had a right to be upset, but she laid down that right for the sake of the gospel. To insist on her rights in that situation would have put an obstacle between this girl and the gospel. But Sveta, the translator, would rather endure anything, even a ruined pair of brand new shoes, rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. And that's what we are called to do as Christians. So I would challenge us, how can we remove obstacles that would be in the way of others, whether inside the church or outside the church, if it's an obstacle to them receiving the gospel? Maybe for some of us, an allegiance to a political party is virtually on par with our allegiance to Christ, or at least it seems that way to others. Could that be an obstacle to someone? There are many other examples of things that really aren't that important, but we allow to be an obstacle to the gospel. Maybe it's how someone has wronged you, and you could refrain, as Svetta did, from imposing your right to to have things be made right. You could uh, refrain from imposing that so that no obstacle will be placed in front of the gospel. So we first have seen that Paul lived for the gospel by removing Obstacles. And second, we see that he lives for the sake of, of the gospel by living as a servant. In verse 19, Paul says, For although I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, he became as a Jew by becoming as one under the law. Paul is not saying that he himself was under the law as a Jew would have been personally. Because Christ has changed the reality for the believer. But when approaching Jews, he conformed to practices that would enable him to win those under the law. Examples about how he did this would include his circumcision of Timothy in Acts 16, and his joining in Jewish purification rites in Acts 21. He always respected the law, and Paul expressed reservation when asking Jews to give up the practice of the law. His concern, really, was whether their ultimate confidence was in the law or in Christ. The Jews could still honor the law, but their trust for salvation must be in Christ alone, not the law. In a similar way, he he then talks about two Gentiles who historically and culturally were outside the law. He lived as one outside the law. He says in verse 21, "...not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ." Paul is trying to make clear that although he's outside the law, to those who relate to the law in the same way, also being outside the law, he's not seeking to do away with the law completely since Christ upheld and fulfilled the law. To the Jew, he displayed respect for the law to win the Jew, but to the non-Jew, he was indifferent to the elements of the law that were beyond what Christ upheld. I'll say that again. To the Jew, he displayed respect for the law to win the Jew, but to the non-Jew, he was indifferent to the elements of the law that were beyond what Christ upheld. So Paul uses this issue of being under the law when relating to a Jew and not under the law when relating to a non-Jew to shed light on the Corinthian situation. In verse 22, he refers back to the situation of whether or not to eat meat sacrificed to idols, and he says to the weak. That is the non meat eater, um, or at least one who didn't eat meat sacrificed to idols. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I had become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Paul is telling us that we have freedom regarding the things the Bible is indifferent toward. But at the same time, these issues are not neutral. There is still a right and a wrong in terms of what we should or should not do based upon the way it affects our brothers or sisters in Christ. Even though it may not be wrong in itself to eat meat that was sacrificed to an idol, it is wrong if it violates our brother's conscience. Paul's heart in all of this is to be a servant of all, that more people might be one to Christ. Paul was being a servant not primarily here by doing an act of service necessarily, but in the self-sacrificial way he related to others. So that's what we're called to, a self-sacrificial way of relating to others. As Christians, we have freedom regarding many things, but we are not completely free in that freedom. We're called to use it whenever and however possible to love our brother and make the gospel great while we make ourselves small. Even our our seemingly indifferent preferences are to come under Christ's lordship, that we would love through them and help others to know Christ, or if they know him, to then grow in Christ. Paul's identity in Christ freed him to be all things to all people. Paul has this beautiful, glorious freedom to be a servant of all, because his identity isn't in the law or being outside the law. His identity isn't in those things. His identity is not in the things of the world. His identity is in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. As a believer, he's been called out of this world and given citizenship in Christ's kingdom. That citizenship forms his identity. If Paul had a passport. It would be issued not from an earthly or political body, but from the kingdom of God. Being a citizen of God's kingdom defines his identity. And then he is sent back to the world as an ambassador. Colossians 3, 1-3 says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Say your things on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. If you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and in God, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. As with all believers, Paul died with Christ in Christ's death. In Christ's resurrection, Paul was raised to new life, as we are. For Paul to have this life hidden with Christ and God means his ultimate allegiance is to King Jesus, and that brings him glorious freedom on this earth. As believers in a culture that is increasingly secular and hostile to the gospel, I think this area to which Paul is speaking is really, really important. How can we relate to the world in a winsome way but not worship their gods? It's challenging and difficult But this is kind of painting a picture for us of how to do that. We can be together for matters of indifference and be a light in those places. I think one such area for me is the realm of kids' sports and extracurricular activities. God is really indifferent as to whether little Timmy or Tommy plays basketball, soccer, baseball, something else, or whether maybe he's more artistically inclined towards music or theater or dance. He's really indifferent towards those things. But he does care that Timmy loves him, loves his neighbor, and seeks to worship and glorify him in all of life. But he doesn't care about specific avenues for that, so it shouldn't be a big deal to us. To the world, these decisions will probably mean much more, but to us, they shouldn't matter too much. But if my child does want to play soccer, he or she has, and I have as a parent, an opportunity in that realm to be all things to those I'm relating to so long as the gospel isn't compromised. I should take initiative to build relationships with other parents and find areas of commonality so that a bridge to the gospel can be built. As a family, we strive to make any sport or activity as ultimately a means for the gospel, keeping the big picture in mind. It's fine to play soccer or whatever this, this specific thing is, might be, but ultimately, we're not there to win or to score goals. We're there to be ambassadors for Christ, for the gospel. We're there to be, to live, and to witness the glory of God, to witness to the glory of God. I can engage in such environments of the world winsomely and freely because my identity isn't in the world or the things of the world, it is in Christ. Not perfectly, I still am challenged with that, I still see areas of weakness in that where my identity isn't perfectly in Christ, but that's, that's the goal, that's the aim, that we can engage in whatever God calls us to without fear of rejection, because our identity is secure as a son or daughter of Christ, as the king's ambassador. I can seek to use whatever means necessary, so long as the Bible is indifferent about them, to win people to Christ. So if you're a middle school student or a high school student, do you think about what sports or extracurricular activities you want to be involved in, not solely based upon what would please you most or how it would look on a college resume, but how you might build bridges of the gospel to others and influence others for Christ? And that illustration applies to what you're involved in as a college student as well, if you're in college. I know that some in our congregation have volunteered at St. At Vinny's or other places. And these are great opportunities to serve, being all things to all people, that you might win some. In some ways, this is what we are doing through Real Community. Again, saw so pictures of that in the summer. We're seeking, in some ways, to be all things to all people, that we might win some. But notice here that the service that Paul has in mind is not so much a physical act or a task, but a relationship, a way of relating, of putting others' needs above our own. And this is put well in another place, in 1 Thessalonians 2, 8, where Paul says, so being affectionately desirous of you, we are ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our very own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Are we willing to share our very own selves With others are willing to serve and relate in that sort of a way that's what god has for us but just as there may have come a point where the jews not just honored the law but worshiped it there will likely come become a point where the soccer parents i associate with not only honor their kids playing the game but worship it because the world is enslaved to idols as christians we're not enslaved to idols we might still struggle with them but we're not enslaved to them So there can be a point where something becomes central or primary and life revolves around it. Soccer or basketball or theater or whatever make really neat hobbies, but very, very poor gods. We can't worship at the altars that the world makes. Our God alone is worthy of our worship. So to be a servant of all, as Paul describes, won't be easy. and We'll have to ask the Lord for help and discernment in that. How can we do that in the world? But we are called to do it for the sake of the gospel. So we have seen that we are to live out the gospel by first removing obstacles that people could have and second by being a servant of all. Now we see that we are to live for the sake of the gospel by exercising self-control and discipline. This point which Paul makes doesn't really exist alongside the first two but kind of builds upon each of them. He's saying if you really want to remove obstacles and live as a servant in relationship to others, you have to exercise self-control and discipline. In verse 24, he says, Do not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. At that time, there were athletic games hosted every two years in Corinth. And they were actually second in popularity only To the Olympic Games in Athens. So, Paul's usage of athletic imagery here should have been very well understood by the Corinthians. Paul's aim in using this analogy is to encourage self control and discipline. And the Greek word that is translated athlete is agonizomai. And this is the word from which we get agony or agonize. Other synonyms would be fight, struggle, or strive. We can often have a very, a very glamorous view of the athlete. But that's not what's in view here. Think about agony, right? Agony isn't really glorious. What's in view is, is that word agony, struggle, fighting, striving. Sure, there is a glamorous side, the side we see victory and the spoils of victory. But anyone who has achieved at the highest levels of, as an athlete would tell us of sweat, blood, and tears. They would tell us of injuries surgeries, soreness, ice baths, and heating pads, and all that for a perishable crown. At that time in Corinth, the head wreaths for the victors of the Olympics were usually made of pine or even celery, I read. I thought that was kind of funny, right? The last vegetable left in the platter used to make a victor's crown. Um, but needless to say, they wouldn't last too long. But our heavenly crowns or rewards will not perish. How we run the race of our lives, how we expend them for the gospel, matters for eternity. Anyone who realizes this realizes there is a great weightiness to it, so he won't run aimlessly or box as one beating the air. He will exercise self-control and discipline. Paul is effectively saying that the Corinthians' decision about eating meat Or other similar decisions that could seem trivial at first are actually decisions for eternity because it affects our brother or sister in Christ. It matters for the sake of the gospel. With just a couple of days left in the new year, some of us might be thinking about New Year's resolutions or goals. And it's a good thing to do so, but I would encourage us not to think about them or make them from an earthly perspective. Make them with an eternal one, taking into consideration that how we live now matters for eternity. So a great one, as I mentioned earlier, would be Bible reading. Try to, especially if you never have, but even if you have, read the Bible through in the year. It can be done in about 15 minutes a day. And then seek to pray from what you have read and make application. Another one would be to join a huddle. A small group Bible study if you haven't. That's probably, um, in terms of being a part of the body of Christ, probably at the top of the list of, of how to do that because you get to know people, and also you are reading and applying the word to get together. It's an environment of accountability. Um, we also hope to, um, in the next few weeks, to start a group for maybe those of us that, some of us that feel just intimidated to start so a group that is called or would, would be with a book, Now That I'm a Christian. So what, is it, what does it look like to be a Christian? What do we believe and how do, how do we begin to live our lives? And so if, if that's you, that would be a great environment for you as well. But as we consider the new year, ask the Lord that your striving after whatever goals you have would be marked by self-control and discipline that is fueled by not trying to earn God's favor, but that is fueled by the fact that we already have God's favor in Christ in the gospel, if we've received his grace. In a race, only one runner gets the prize. So let us run that we may obtain it. So in this passage, we've seen that Paul is not asking the Corinthians to be or do something that he is unwilling to be or to do. He asks them to eat or not eat the food sacrificed to idols out of love for their brother or sister in Christ all fueled by a heart living for the gospel. He then tells them how this applies to him. It applies to Paul by not putting an obstacle in the way of the gospel, even when it was within his rights. It applies to him by being a servant of all in relationship, that he might win some to Christ. It applied to him by exercising self-control and discipline as he runs his race of faith. The gospel is so big, so huge, but it's also penetrating, all encompassing. It doesn't just demand the compartments of our lives that are easy to offer up. And I know that we are good at doing that, offering God the compartments of our life that are easy to offer up. I know that I can be good at doing that. But the gospel requires that we offer up to God all the compart- compartments of our life. Really, in front of Christ, there are no compartments anymore. If we are a believer, it's all his, or it should be all his. The gospel demands our soul, our lives, our all. And Paul concludes this whole section regarding the issue of food offered to idols, which continues into chapter 10. He says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. And then a couple of verses later, he says, "'Be imitators of me as I am of Christ.'" As Paul lived for the gospel, he was only seeking to imitate Christ. How did Christ live for the gospel? Christ put no obstacles in the way of the gospel he preached. He said to all, "'Come to me.'" The the only obstacles that kept people from, from coming to him then and that keep people from coming to him today are their own obstacles not his. Christ came to be served. Sorry, Christ came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark 10 45. He didn't merely build bridges for the gospel. He himself became that bridge. It is through him that we are reconciled to God. Christ ran his race with a discipline and self-control amidst an agony that we will never understand. He had a human free will. At any point, he could have said, I'm out, I'm done. But he didn't. He had a long, consistent obedience in the same direction. As God, he took on human flesh. In the garden, he prayed, not my will, but yours be done, as he sweat drops of blood. On the cross, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Through it all, he stayed the course with self-control And discipline. He endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. He had his eyes set on eternity. Now he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let us then run with endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. So, how will you live beyond yourself, beyond the concerns of me now? How will you live? for the sake of the gospel, both today and in the days to come in the new year. Let's pray.